Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. Now if you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast it is all about connecting people of the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. So each and every Wednesday we feature a new guest who shares their wisdom, their works, their journey alongside seven reggae selections. Now, with well over 100 episodes, we have so much positivity for you to go select, go find. We've got a big catalogue of brothers and sisters, their amazing works, some great, some high frequency reggae, of course. Yeah. And everything in between. And an abundance of positivity just waiting for you to go click and listen and, you know, put it out there into your own works. Yeah. So if you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising podcast, please do so wherever you are listening. Alternatively, you can subscribe via daniel.co.uk. So if you do it via daniel.co.uk, you get all of the extras, which will all become clear when you go there. So all you need to do is go to D-A-N-I-E al.co.uk that link is also in the description as well subscribe there you can connect with me there as well via social media and we also have a contact page there as well I just want to take a moment to big up all of the regular listeners. Thank you for your beautiful comments. Thank you for sharing these works. And also thank you to our previous guests throughout the years. I am so thankful to be part of sharing these stories of brothers and sisters all across the diaspora throughout all of the different works that they're doing, sharing these high vibrations of reggae music because this music is so powerful. Yeah, it's so inspirational. And I just want to give thanks to all of you. Yeah, I want to give thanks to the guests. I want to give thanks for the music and give thanks to everybody that is listening. Thank you so, so much. Also, if you are a new listener, don't forget to check out our special editions as well. Because yes, we feature a lot of brothers and sisters, but we also share a lot of works from our ancestors to maybe subjects that you as the listeners have asked for us to cover. Yes, yeah? so there's so much knowledge to be shared within these episodes. Please, please, please go through and and find what resonates with you because that's that's the one that you're supposed to listen to at that particular moment. So um, yeah, just enjoy is what I'm trying to say. For those of you that tuned in last week, you know that we're doing a three-part feature yeah, so normally each week we either feature, we have our special editions or we feature a different brother and sister. And the episode lasts around about an hour. We're not too strict on it because we like to go with the flow. We like to make sure everybody kind of gets out all of the wisdom that they want to share as much as possible. But this this sister, 
there was so much to be shared. Don't get me wrong, we have gone over before, so we've gone well over the hour, and sometimes we've split into two parts, but never have we split into three parts. Yeah, so there was a lot to get through with this sister. Um, so this is the second part of our three-part feature on this sister. So if you're just coming to us now, go back to last week, listen to that one first, and then come back to this one. So we ended last week by listening to her fourth selection, which was Mr. Reggae, L-A-B. And we're going to go straight back into the interview because this there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom to be shared. Um, so there's only going to be one reggae song. I'm just warning you in this episode because, you know, the flow of this just kept going and kept going and kept going. Um, and yeah, so we're going to come back in with Agnes Sofwa. Now, you've talked about your journey through education and obviously getting your degree. Um, well, I know there's a big story from getting your degree, um, moving from Zambia to Australia. I don't know if there were any other moves in between that. And then your journey from that to then going into nursing. So you can you tell us that story, please? Ah, the story is long, but I'll try to summarize it. So... Um, as I've said, my first love was definitely being a banker when I was growing up. Uh, but the unfortunate thing happened just when I finished high school, my father passed away. But uh, my mom was still working in the taxation office. And uh, the person who was responsible for employing people in the taxation office was actually my my father's uh, friend. And he took up that position. It was my father's office, my father's secretary. And um, he asked whether I could be interested in applying, seeing that they were taking up uh, graduate from high school at the time so my mom put in an application for me and I got accepted I went and worked in the taxation office um, for a few years but I was still just uh, you know joined straight from high school obviously I was just uh, a clerical staff member but um, I decided because I couldn't go to university again university is expensive I had no means to to be sponsored when my father passed away I decided to enroll myself into um, a college which is actually a uk course uh, at um which is a accounting diploma which i finished and i got a, an advanced diploma and i got promoted in the tax office i became an assistant inspector but at the time we decided that we were going to uh, migrate or visit australia for study purposes for my husband so i continued studying part-time and then we moved to Australia, where we decided to to stay anyway, and to cut the story short. And I went into university to finish. I wanted to finish my bachelor's degree in accounting, which I did, I would say, maybe 95% of the time. But meanwhile, I was still a mom. I was still working. Um, I was still working part-time. Uh, we had our third child when we moved, because we came with our two kids, our third child here. I was working in the bank at the time. And I was still studying, wanted to finish my bachelor's degree. Then um, in my last year of my studies, I became pregnant with our fourth child, who when she was born, you know, we, we were realized that she had a condition, which is sickle cell disease. And at the time, I was just finishing. When I, when I found out that I was pregnant with her, actually, I was... Um, 
doing my summer school at the time. And uh, when she, she was born, I was just about to complete my studies when I was told that she has sickle cell disease. And I knew definitely because of the challenges that I faced, I didn't know much about hospital system. I'm one person who like knowing what I do, but I found a challenge where every time the doctors would come and explain to me what was happening with her, I'll take a full 24 hours for me to go and research. And then the following day, that's when I'll come back with some questions. So whilst in hospital, when I, we got our daughter's diagnosis, the first thought that came to my head was that I was going to study medicine, which, um, you know, reality hit when we got discharged after our first admission, almost two months in hospital, that I was a mom of four, that I can't manage to do medicine. So I decided to um, quickly finish my business degree, which I was doing part-time at the time. Uh, accounting degree, I went to university student services that look, I know exactly what I want to do. I don't want to put to throw my studies away, my business studies and start nursing altogether. Is that something that I can do because I want to do nursing? Because I, I've got a family situation, I need to know what happens in the hospital system. I needed to understand sickle cell disease. So they told me that, you know, what you can do is quickly finish, uh, forget about those two units, which were very hard, which was uh, auditing um, uh, and uh, advanced taxation and accounting three or three very, very hard uh, uh, subject. They said, change this so that you can just finish your business degree and then enroll into this uh, master's degree for nursing, which will take you two years. So that's what I did. I completed my bachelor's uh, uh, de uh, business degree, immediately enrolled into a master's degree in nursing. And uh, I found that degree in Sydney and we moved to Sydney. That's when I did my, my master's degree in, in uh, 2013. And that's how I've been. So I finished my diploma in accounting, business degree, and I got a master's degree in nursing. The nursing really was to understand my child's illness. So you touched on, obviously, you've talked about the reasoning as to why you went into into nursing um, to obviously help your daughter with her uh, with her symptoms and to overstand that more. Can you share more of your daughter's sickle cell story? When did you first find out that she had sickle cell and when were the first symptoms apparent to you? Um, so I'll start with the symptoms first, actually. Um, my story really starts with me, uh, myself, and how the hospital system really failed us. When I was pregnant with her, I was really sick. I was, uh, um, you know, if you understand sickle cell disease and the sickle cell trait, for people who live with a trait like myself, which is a sickle cell gene, in rare circumstances, you can manifest with symptoms if your immune system goes down. And uh, for me, when you're pregnant, you sort of uh, compromise a little bit. So the sickle cell symptoms manifested in me and I had all the symptoms like a sickle cell patient. I had low HP, I was in pain and everything. And the hospital did pick up that I had a sickle cell trait. And that's about it. So they came to me and said, no, we found that you have a sickle cell gene. Does anyone in your family have sickle cell disease? But at the time, I didn't know. We didn't know, obviously, because we, my mom also comes from another broken family, like her father. Her father's side, they've got sickle cell. We didn't know. So I said no, and that's it. They took my word for it. 
So they didn't advise us that, you know, when you give birth, your child might have the sickle cell trait or anything like that. They didn't. So when she was born, from about five or six months, she started having, which which now we know that there were symptoms. The first symptoms, uh, you know, the fingers, what they call the uh, dictylitis, where the fingers um, the, will swell and even the, the toes will swell and she'll have swollen uh, joints sometimes. We noticed that from about five or six months and she would cry, but we didn't know what it was. And every time I would take her to the doctors, the only thing that came to my mind was that maybe I had a disease that I'd passed on to her when I was pregnant because I was sick when I was pregnant with her. I'll tell them the story, but it never occurred to me that that question that the doctors asked me was a very important question when we are, whether we, we had sickle cell, but I never thought about it because it's never taught in school back home. It wasn't that time. I think things are changing now, but we never we never taught at school at all uh, when, when I was uh, in high school. But, you know, they missed that. So they could just treat the, oh, she swelled up, they give her pain, they do the x-ray. No, the bones are okay. Maybe, you know, something happened. And then again, about seven months, she had a first attack of pneumonia. Again, take, taking her back. I would, every time I would take a new, please do a full body check, a full blood test. And the doctors wouldn't listen to me. So she had those symptoms until at the age of 12 months when she had the nasty nasty pneumonia which we call the acute chest syndrome which affects the lungs and by that time now the doctors had to run around to find out what was happening with this child that's when after doing blood tests they found that she had sickle cell disease and uh, sickle cells at the time were like 85 percent so that's when our life changed and she was 14 months that's when she was diagnosed with sickle cell disease and what type of sickle cell does she have? Because there are different types, right? Yes, yes. So she has the sickle cell disease SS. Can you explain so to our listeners what, what that is? So um, for for normal people like uh, others, maybe yourself, if you've had your, your test, we have the normal hemoglobin, which is hemoglobin A. So it's fine. It's got no issues when when it's being transported in the in the red blood cells. It's fine, but for other people, they have a mutated gene which makes them have hemoglobin S, um, and uh, you can have the normal one. Obviously, when we're when when a, when a child you know is is formed, we get half of our genes from our parents and uh, mom and dad. So you can get half of the normal gene, for example, hemoglobin A, and then um, you get the mutated gene hemoglobin S from ch somebody who has the S, which is uh, the, the abnormal hemoglobin. So for me, I have the AS. I had the normal hemoglobin from my father, and then my mother has, um, she also has, has half. She has A and S, A from her, parent, her mom, and S from my grandfather. So because it's a, it's a genetic condition which goes in, in, our, in our, you know, forever in our family, my daughter got the uh, deformed hemoglobin S from myself, and my husband also has the AS, so she got the S from him. So she has a sickle cell disease SS. And what that means is that that, that hemoglobin affects the red blood cells, which uh, transports... Uh, obviously this oxygen in our body um it it affects the red blood cells such that after 20 days the red blood cells get deformed because of this molecule or this protein in the cells it just breaks it after 20 days 
And so when the red blood cells are, are broken for somebody who has sickle cell disease, SS, they, they, they can't be transported well in the body. It's very common. It's like, you know, we have uh, um, maybe traffic in the, in, the, in the street where there's so many cars, everybody trying to go to the same street, there's congestion. That's what's happening in the, in the blood vessels. We have these cells that are broken. They don't have like a normal donut shape just going, passing through each other, giving space. But when they are broken, they become into like a sickle shape, like a half moon shape. They are broken and they are stuck. So it gives them, one of the obvious symptoms is pain because they are stuck, they are not moving. And then it's where they are stuck, they're swollen but also gives them a lot of complications around the body. So that's what happens if we just maybe end there before we get confused. It's the, the, the hemoglobin S is a deformed um, gene compared to normal hemoglobin for somebody who doesn't have sickle cell disease, which is hemoglobin A. So before we continue with your daughter's story, can you, um, can you give us an insight? So if, say that, um, your story went a little bit differently. And when the doctor said to you, um, do you have sickle cell or do you have the traits within your family? Um, if you'd have said yes, um, would that have changed how they'd have treated you? Um, and also the second question is, um, if they'd have known that, would they have given your daughter a blood test um, as soon as she was born? How would that story have played out differently or would it... How would uh, do you think it would have played out differently? Oh yes, it would have played out very, very differently. Firstly, for me, of course, um, maybe they wouldn't have known so much because studies, even as we speak now, there's no much backing in terms of the science world that if somebody has a sickle cell trait, they can manifest as a sickle cell patient. But that would have helped them treat me. One, they would have transfused me, which they didn't for whatever reasons. But for my daughter, obviously, uh, you know, because I said that she ended up having the third attack of pneumonia until her lungs were destroyed. Uh, she had to have surgery the following year to cut part of the lung out. They would have done a simple test when she was born, find out she had sickle cell disease, and all they would have done was put on prophylactic antibiotics. That's it. And that costs less than a dollar in terms of uh, money-wise to prevent what happened to her. So they would have um, done that. And also, if we had the newborn screen policy in Australia, they would have still picked it up. But we don't have it. And this is when our organization, which I'll talk about later now, this is when we've applied for the newborn screening for sickle cell disease in Australia. But if they had it at the time, which is 14 years ago now, because she's 14, they would have picked it up. But also there are some rare cases, like in my case, or some of the doctors that have been abroad and they know about sickle cell disease, which is one of the most common genetic disorders and affects mostly predominantly people from the sub-Saharan Africa. Those doctors that are really well-trained, if they are treating a pregnant woman from this part of the world, they do treat, they do test for it and they do find it. We have people in our group where they found it 
and they did the necessary precautions when the baby was born to start treatment options. And as we speak, there's two types of people in this country. There's people like me who were in hospital almost every other week with my daughter who was presented late at ED. And we have a few who are lucky enough to be seen by a doctor who knows sickle cell disease. And they recommended that they do a test and the child was found with sickle cell disease. And they're only in the hospital maybe um, for checkups twice or three times a year. So that would have really been different because my daughter's uh, complications were nasty. It was one of the, the she, she's had the, one of the worst experiences with sickle cell disease. And that's why later on we'll talk about where we are today in terms of, uh, you know, her sickle cell. But it would have, it would have really changed and it would have been very, very less costly on, on the government because everything has to do with funding because getting prophylactic antibiotics is literally less than a dollar. That's how much she, she gets so. She's, she is on prophylactic antibiotics as we speak. When you were pregnant, you would have got the test. What is that test? Is it a blood test? And is that test the same uh, for the newborn child? Is it just a blood test to detect that? What What is that? No, there's different types that they do. If they want to... You know, it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, a catch-22. Um, when when you're doing um, a test to find out if your daughter or your, your child, sorry, will have sickle cell disease, they do actually have to test the amniotic fluid in the in the in the in the uterus to find out and in other parts of the world unfortunately if uh, the, the pregnancy at a certain stage they'll tell them just like the way they test for down syndrome and others they'll tell them that oh look your child will have sickle cell disease and they've got options but for me uh, as a person i don't think if um if they told me at the time that they would want to test the baby because it, it wouldn't have changed anything i was going to have the child anyway so um, they would have done, um, just know for record purposes, put it on the file that I've got the sickle cell trait and that when the baby is born, because if they had asked me, and, and I, was, I presented about seven months, so my, the baby was almost full term. There was nothing like, you know, terminating or not, which other parts of the world and other people are offered that option and it's okay for them, they believe in that. I don't. Even if I was told at one month or two months that, you know, you have the sickle cell trait, the child you are carrying might have sickle cell disease, I would have still gone ahead and had the child. And then, then the, the child is tested about um, um, newborn screening. Yes, they do like a blood spot. Then they test if they have the sickle cell. Um, they do, I think they do the first test and they do the confirmatory test to see that they have the, the condition really. Um, so that's what would have, would have changed. But for, for, for like gynecologists, they would do a test which uh, they do have to take um, some, some samples from the uterus and the, there's different types of the tests which I can't really tell you off head, which I can give you some information afterwards. But they have to go into the womb actually and take the fluid and test if the child will be born with sickle cell disease. But as a, as a pregnant woman, can you have, can your, in order for you to know if you have the trait, would that be as simple as a blood test or is it more complicated than oh, that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, it's a simple blood test. Okay. All they do is a simple blood test that they, they do is an electrophoresis testing just to find out if you have the sickle cell trait. And would that be the same for um, the child when it's born? So say if they tested the child as a newborn, so it's already born, would that be a simple blood test as well or is that more complicated? 
Yeah, it's a simple blood, blood test as well. But I think with the babies, they do uh, maybe one or two tests, a confirmatory test as well. But again, it's just a simple, simple blood spot, like on newborn screening uh, testing. They just do a heel prick and get the blood sample and they test it. Okay. So to move on with your, your daughter's story, when you find out at 12 months, can you continue with the journey with her sickle cell story, please? Yeah, so at 12 months, we were told that, oh, this is a reality, and I fought with the doctors. I said, no, no, this is a diagnosis I was given when I was pregnant, when I was sick, check again. They had to bring the doctors from where I was being treated. We had a meeting to say, no, definitely, she had sickle cell disease. And uh, so life changed. She was put on um, medications immediately. She was put on hydroxyurea which is uh, the only, the first drug, one of the first drugs to work for sickle cell patients um, and uh, a lot of cocktails for uh, antibiotics, which she took almost 12 months after hospital admission. We are admitted for about eight weeks in hospital when she was diagnosed because her pneumonia was very, very bad because she had to have, uh, you know, fluid on her lungs drained, uh, you know, her lung collapsed. And, um, but we she pulled through and a lot of blood transfusions and our life changed since on on the other side i was you know nursing her knowing how to give medications to a child which i'd never done before a hospital every other month or every other week because um uh, she had damaged lungs now that means she was susceptible to pneumonias every time and coughs and uh, sneezing wasn't good for her so, but one of the things that they did immediately was to test all our kids to find out if not, some of them, because sometimes sickle cell can manifest late, depending on in a person, it's very different. We've had stories where, you know, adults were diagnosed over the age of 30. So they decided to test all the children and they told us that our kids were okay. But at that time, even uh, 15, 14 years ago, uh, it was still common to have bone marrow transplants as a treatment options in places like the UK, the US and India, but they had never done it in Australia. But they just had this information to say, you know, the good thing about all this is that your child, the third one, if you ever thought of doing uh, a curative option or things improve in Australia, she is a full match. So we sat on that information, knowing at the back of our head that maybe this could be something that is helpful. And also, you know, if the, um, the hospital where my daughter was born were vigorous enough, they would have uh, asked, like, uh, even before my, my third child, when she was born, they asked me that, you know, would you want to keep the cold blood? But because the hospital system, and this is when I, when I became a nurse, I'm very good at explaining things so that I know that the patient understands. They didn't tell me what the cold blood does. So if we had kept the cold blood for our third child, it was going to be a very good source for the bone marrow transplant for my fourth. But the hospital system again failed us there anyway. Uh, to cut the story short, they told us that our third child was a match if we had to do the, the bone marrow transplant. And we sat on that information for years until we decided to go with that option. But it, did, it took long for us to go through that option. I decided to go into nursing, as I said, I had to change states. We, we changed states because of the treatment option. We found that uh, our friend who had a child in Sydney, in New South Wales, they said that the treatment options there were better than in Perth, Western Australia, where we were. 
So we moved for that, but also I decided to go to university there to study nursing, as I said, full-time at University of Sydney. And uh, treatment option continued with the hydroxyurea and prophylactic antibiotics and obviously colds and flus a lot every season because of her lungs which were damaged. And um, over time, the hydroxyurea, for whatever reasons, it failed. It stopped working on her. We changed to do uh, regular blood transfusions, which was okay, but uh, with blood transfusions, there's always risks. But also risks you know, are, are reduced a bit because it's very, very, uh, you know, the way they do the testing here to make sure that there's no other conditions that are taken. It, it's, it's very well screened here in Australia and obviously all parts of the world, the blood is screened. But there are some things that you can't really avoid in terms of the iron overload and also antibodies which she developed. So she developed antibodies and she developed iron overload. So we needed to take, uh, on top of all the other medication, we had to take extra medication to reduce the iron overload. But you can't do anything for for antibodies. So over time, we changed from regular transfusions to a red cell exchange, which reduces the, the likelihood of increasing the iron overload. So we, with that part, we eliminated the iron overload, but we couldn't do anything with uh, antibodies. So she had developed the first one, and by the time she developed the second one, and as the more you get the antibodies, the more difficult it will be for you to find blood in terms of matching purposes. So after 10 years, the discussions of having a bone marrow transplant came back on the table because we were running out of treatment options here in Australia. We know that um, right now in the world, we have four drugs that are used to treat sickle cell patients. We don't have that in Australia. We only have hydroxyurea. So we had no other option. When the hydroxyurea failed for her, it meant that the next thing for us was uh, we go for blood transfusions or red cell exchange, obviously or both of them um, involving blood. And that start, started failing slowly for us. And that's when we started going back to uh, discussing the bone marrow transplant, which had never been done before in Australia. So that was scary for us, but we, we had a leap of faith and we accepted to do the transplant after the doctors did the homework themselves. The doctor who treated her had to go back to France to relearn or just do a refresher course in terms of doing the transplants on people with sickle cell disease. She went to France for six months, came back and said, I'm now ready, we can do the transplant. I've gone back, because she did transplants way back. She, she, was, uh, she was French before she moved to Australia 10 years before she had done transplants, but over time she had never done any in Australia. She had to go back. So she came back and they said uh, they were ready and uh, that's how we did the bone marrow transplant for sickle cell disease uh, in Australia in 2019. And as we speak, she, she's cured. She had the transplant and she's perfect now. So there's a lot of information that you've just shared. Um, so in terms of the bone marrow treatment, how... You said that it's in. It was already in other countries um, previous to Australia. Do you know how new yeah. at the time that treatment was? It was. It was there for because I remember the first person or this first child to have uh, a cure for uh, for sickle cell disease using bone marrow transplant was in the eighties in in America. It was in the eighties and uh, it was it was very well known 
in the UK, in India, France, um, very well known in other parts of the world, except Australia. And the reason why is because the prevalence of sickle cell disease here in Australia is not so high. And so you see that even just now, when our organization came on board, that's when things are changing. That's what I'm saying. Even now, this is when we are applying for the newborn screening because there's no one to to to, to do it because um, people didn't speak and um, the numbers have just grown, uh, increased like double in the past 10 years. As So the past 10 years, we are talking about maybe less than 500 people, the whole country, when my daughter was born. But now this is when we're talking about roughly, because we don't have a, a, a conclusive database, we are talking about maybe roughly a thousand people. So it had to do with the numbers more so than the, the, the science. They knew the science. They do transplants for other conditions. They've done transplants on, um, on thalassemia, for example, but they've never done transplants for sickle cell disease because no one talked about it. For me, I started asking as a parent, like, what options, what other options do we have? Because my life from my daughter, at the time my daughter was born, and especially after I did nursing, I lived in, in, a, in a sickle cell bubble, like, every time. Even now, I don't think I've ever stayed a day without talking about sickle cell disease from the time my daughter was born. Every day I talk about sickle cell. So every time I go to the hospital, I would go with questions. I found out about this. I found out about gene therapy way before anyone knew about gene therapy because I'd read about it. So I initiated the talk about, you know, a treatment option for my daughter. And that's how we started talking with the doctors. I said, no, it's actually a possibility. We can do it. But how? You know, it had to be, obviously, the doctor, the hospital has, it's a very expensive procedure, over $300,000. Um, the hospital system had to accept. It's a public hospital. We are lucky that we, we, we ended up using our, private health insurance because we, we wanted to help the hospital but even if we didn't have private health insurance you're still going to have it anyway firstly it's a very expensive procedure we needed to find the right doctors who are willing to do it and that's why the the oncologist dr francois had to go and relearn those were costs again to the hospital go back to france to relearn how to do transplant so it was very much available around other parts of the world, but not so much here because no one spoke about it. There was no opportunity. Other families never brought it up. And so the doctors didn't initiate that. And that's why when we as a family started pushing, it had opened doors and windows for others. I know a family who are they're just refugees, they barely speak English, but their child was offered and their child is cured now because we opened the door and now the the, the doctors, their, you know, their brains have opened. They're talking about doing half matches, which had never been done before in Australia. I know we've been, like, last month I went to, uh, I was there in London. I came for the conference. I had a few doctors from Australia joining the, the ASCAT sickle cell conference. So now things are changing because we as parents, as, uh, you know, organizations we are speaking and we are telling them this is what happens in other parts of the world that's even the newborn screening every time i've got this argument out on these countries including african countries like if a country in zambia in, in africa like zambia my my country and i put it on social media and i tag ministers health ministers if these countries can have newborn screening how come we don't have it here in australia being the first you know being a developed country so um, facilities and information is there, but there's just no one to talk about it. And when we came on the scene, things are changing. So you mentioned there um, gene therapy. For the listeners that don't know what gene therapy is, can you just give a brief explanation? 
so in lay terms, I would say, remember when I was talking about the, the, the 40 hemoglobin, which is hemoglobin S or hemoglobin A, there's different types like hemoglobin E or hemoglobin C. In our bodies, we have genetics or genes to, to make it in single or lay terms. So gene therapy, what gene therapy does is that the scientists go in, this is what they've done, they've studied the genes. They go in and repair, it's just like taking a spanner to, to, to repair a spare part. They go in and repair the gene, the gene that is a 40, the, the hemoglobin S, they go in and repair the S so that it can be okay to start producing red blood cells. No more, no more, no, no more, no, no more hemoglobin and becomes um, the AA so that we have the normal red blood cells. So they man they manipulate the genes to to make it okay when it's forty in simple terms, um, as opposed to having that sickle cell SS where the red blood cells would die after thirty days. It, it, that doesn't happen. And sometimes they go in when you are born for whatever reason, science. When the babies are born, they are born with a hemoglobin F, which is fetal hemoglobin. That hemoglobin, for whatever science it is, is not affected by sickle cell disease. So the other things, so there's different types of what they do with the genes. Sometimes they go in to manipulate so that they increase the production of uh, fetal hemoglobin so that you are not affected by the sickling that is, uh, you know, sickle cell patients go through. So in, in, in simple terms, it's uh, manipulating the gene in our body so that you are not affected by the sickle cell symptoms. Okay, and going back to um, your daughter's treatment with the bone marrow treatment, can you walk us through that treatment, um, walk us through the procedure and how it works, please? Yeah, so I've, I've talked about manipulating of the gene with a gene therapy. With a, a bone marrow transplant, it works on the surface. It works in the body, in the bones itself, where the, the red blood cells are produced. So the doctors go in and uh, kill the, the bone marrow itself. This is where the, the, the red blood cells are um, manufactured in our body. So they are replaced by the bone marrow of somebody who's healthy, who doesn't have sickle cell disease. So we go through a procedure where you, you go through chemotherapy, which uh, unfortunately, when you do chemotherapy, that ju it doesn't just kill the red blood cells production. It does all blood components in the body. It's a very risky procedure. I know there have been fatal uh, cases after the procedure because it's, that's how risky it is. So you go in and uh, have chemotherapy for about 10 days. That's what our daughter went through. Nine days, actually, nine days of chemotherapy. And then one day she had to rest. And then on the, on the 11th day, they took the bone marrow from the sister who's a match. So they have to do the matching to see that they are, they are compatible in terms of uh, the, the gene or the red blood, not the red blood cells, really, the bone marrow, because they, be, they could be different blood types, but the bone marrow has to somehow be the same, or it has to be at least a match. They, they like over 50%, but 100% is the best option. And if it's a sibling, donor, and young, it's the best option. For us, we ticked all the boxes. The young, the, young, the young sister or the elder sister, and she was 100% match, they took that uh, bone marrow, which was about 750 mils, after they killed all her blood components in our daughter, and they put it in her. And all you needed to do now is wait. It's like planting a seed, really. 
they put in the bone marrow into in the in the um, in our body, and we just had to wait for it to start growing. And it starts growing things like uh, you know baby uh, hemoglobin, which like like neutrophils and all that. When you're doing blood tests, they'll they'll tell you there's different components in the blood. All that had to grow, and we had to wait. I think the first signs was about 21 days when we started seeing it coming. And then it continued growing as uh, as uh, as we stayed in hospital, and uh, we stayed in hospital for 40 days when we are discharged. So for bone marrow transplant, they are just correcting the red blood cells production. Your genes do not change when you um, you are old enough, or when you are if you are an adult when having the transplant, when you decide to have a family, you can still pass on the sickle cell gene. It doesn't change. That's the difference in terms of the gene therapy where they manipulate the gene, but with the uh, with the bone marrow transplant, they don't do anything with the genes. They only work with the red blood cells production in the bone marrow, and uh, it's a process. It's a it's a procedure that's very risky. You really have to be recommended and cancelled, go therapy because it can go either way. And we've seen that before in Australia. The first person they tried to do this one was uh, an ad, uh, almost an adult. Um, she didn't make it. She she didn't make it. And um, you know that's something that also prompted us to move states because it was very traumatic. This is a family that we knew, and then we sat on that information for ten years when we decided to go with uh, with the procedure ourselves. But you just have to be open-minded that it can go wrong because it's a very risky procedure. But the risks are, are reduced if it's a sibling donor and if you are 100% match and if the doctors definitely know what they're doing. So, And that we are fortunate to undergo that and it was you know, risk-free and very simple for us. So are the risks um, also reduced as to the age of the person? Is it less risky the younger you are, or does that make no difference? Uh, it does. That's what the, the, the literature says, because uh, there's so much organ damage for sickle cell patients. Uh, as, we, as I was saying, um, the sickle cell disease affects the red blood cells production and um, in the body. And you see that because the red blood cells are deformed, they don't take so much oxygen to the body. And so uh, red blood cells equals uh, oxygen, which is fuel for our organs. If you don't have enough oxygen to your bodies, the organs die. So there's a lot of uh, organ damage as people grow older. And because there's a lot of organ damage as people grow older, it's very risky to do um, uh, the transplants at a certain age. As uh, To what age? I'm not a doctor. I'm a nurse, but I don't treat sickle cell patients. I wouldn't say so. So the best thing people can do is to ask a lot of questions from doctors. I mean, I, I've had, I've done a lot of talks on social media about, you know, sickle cell and bone marrow transplants. People can look me up and see all the talks that I've got, I think, three or so, four videos on uh on uh, transplants and sickle cell disease, the doctors will tell you the right age, but they always say the younger the better because the the organs are not as damaged as uh, the, the the older people that um, you know are living with sickle cell disease. So by the time she was ten, they started uh, you know we started having that discussion because we knew that if we miss that window, the the risky you know percentages was going to be higher. And that's why we decided, in part because she was 10 when we, 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 we had to do it, because of the age as well. And how old was the sibling at, at that um, point in time? 
Oh, she was 12. So there are two years difference. So she was 12 at the time. Right. And what was the recovery like for her? Uh, the one who gave the, the bone marrow? Yes. Yeah. Oh, she only stayed in hospital for a, for a day. So there's different ways in terms of how they collect the bone marrow. The, the easiest way is to have just like a normal blood test. They, they are hooked onto this surfaces machine where it goes through like you're donating plasma and they, they take it from there. But it's not as rich as going into the source itself. So if you take it through blood test, uh, like a like a blood transfusion rather they have to give you some medications to bring the bone marrow on the surface but if you go in through the the pelvis like what they did for my daughter you're just going in like real raw raw no chemicals nothing that's what they did so they they drilled t two holes on her pelvis on the right and left and it was just like simple you know wounds she was in hospital for a night and it took about six weeks to heal went back to have a checkup she had a few, like a bit of backache afterwards, but she's fine. It had not affected her in any way. And in terms of your daughter that has um, or had the sickle cell, um, did she have to have any follow-up procedures after after recovery from that um, that transfusion? Oh yes, yes. So so my daughter had the transplant. Of course, it's like a transfusion, but. After the 30 days, we were um, discharged. We still needed to come. I think initially it was every every week and then every two weeks and in, to, to a month. Uh, until 12 months, we are coming at least monthly. And she was also on anti-rejection drugs so that the, the, the body doesn't reject the sister's um, donated bone marrow. And exactly 12 months from the day she had the transplant, that's when she stopped that medication. But she's still doing the tests. We go. We still. We are still going, even as we speak. So now we've cut down to, I think every three months we still go back to do the blood test. Well, we're just checking that everything's growing okay. She still goes through the all the eye checkups and all that. I don't know how long that will go for. Whether it will still be until she's 18, we don't know. But we are still going to hospitals for checkups. Otherwise, in terms of medication, she has stopped all medications except. Um, she is on prophylactic, I said this before, on prophylactic antibiotics just because one of the nasty complications with sickle cell is uh, the spleen was affected, so she had to be um, you know, surgically removed the spleen, and the spleen plays a role in our body to fight our infections. It's like the antibiotics in our, in our body, but she doesn't have a spleen, so she needs to take the uh, prophylactic antibiotics for the rest of her life or until she grows older to see what works for her. But at the moment, that's the only medication she takes. She only takes their prophylactic antibiotics and we are still going for checkups at least every every three months now. Thank you for sharing all that knowledge for our listeners. Um, I really appreciate you going so in-depth because I know, and that's why I ask so many questions, because I know people will have lots of questions surrounding that. And obviously you're the best person to ask as, as a parent that's actually gone through all of that. Um, for our listeners that may not be aware, though, can you share your knowledge on the origins of sickle cell? So where sickle cell came from in the first place? Well, literature talks about um, the coloration of, of uh, malaria and sickle cell disease. Um, if you Google in 
sickle cell disease just on the on the on google and put in the map it will show you and then google malaria as well it will show you like which parts of the world where we have malaria and where we have sickle cell disease it's like an identical map the reason for that and this is what literature talks about was that a long time ago when the malaria parasite the mosquito would, would uh, you know obviously um go to somebody stings a person the malaria parasite would go in the red blood cells as the host this is their home so it goes in the in the in the in the body and stays in the in the red blood cells and somebody sick gets malaria they are treated but then the body starts started fighting for itself and what it decided to do was to break the the red blood cells so that if you the, the malaria parasite goes in the body they don't have a home and they'll die but in doing that it created what we call now sickle cell disease okay you don't have when you are carried the sickle cell trait you don't have a severe not that you can't have you can't have severe malaria compared to somebody who doesn't have so if you have the sickle cell trait malaria won't be as severe but um if you have sickle cell then you have sickle cell disease and the, the red blood cells are destroyed and uh, that's how it, it came about so you see that we have a lot of people because malaria is predominantly in sub-saharan africa and some mediterranean places but also um so these maps were originally if you look it up they are there but in today's world because of migration patterns in because of intermarriages we find that sickle cell disease is everywhere and it's not just affecting people of color because a long time ago they used to say that it's a, a black disease which is not right now you can look as caucasian as you can be and you'll be in the same hospital with my daughter who's as black as she can be and they both have sickle cell disease because it's a genetic condition as i said for me on my mom's side my mom doesn't have it but um her, her father who's my grandfather has a sickle cell gene which has manifested in me now in my daughter because it's a gene generation thing it goes on and on and on and on and um so predominantly affects people from uh, sub-saharan africa and the mediterranean and india and um other parts of the world like the saudi um all those places where there's malaria let me just say that but the only thing that can tell you is for you to get tested because you can never know your genetic tree until you get tested to see your blood type and see what you have in your blood. Okay. And for our listeners, um, again, that don't know, uh, you mentioned earlier that some of the symptoms uh, to do with sickle cell were pain related. What are the other symptoms? What are the other, uh, how does it manifest in the body in other ways? Yeah, so one of the things that I what I spoke about was um, um, pain is is the obvious one, but there, there's so many. Um, so there's the symptoms initially. So the symptoms, and then there's complications. So symptoms will be pain, and you'll be anemic. So you can have anemia for no reasons. You're just feeling tired. You are always fatigued, and also pain and um, the swelling of the hands and feet when they are young, especially. You can also have frequent infections. You have maybe your child is not growing, you know, as at the same level with other children. You have things like vision problems, all those. So those are symptoms that you can just question yourself. And this is why for me, when my daughter had pneumonia for the third time, I already had children before who we had never visited hospital. 
But when she was having these infections, I started asking myself, I was telling my mom, I was like, mm-mm. There's just that sixth sense as a mother that there was something wrong. So those are symptoms. And once now you know, even if you don't know, then now things, symptoms, symptoms turn into complications. Like my daughter had the, the infection, she had the, the pneumonia, which turned out to be an acute chest syndrome. But because it wasn't treated as the way it should be treated as a sickle cell patient, she ended up having a collapsed lung and we ended up cutting part of the lung out. But um, yeah, fatigue, anemic, infections, vision problems, delayed growth, all those things are something that you start questioning. And the, the sooner you know, but also when you are, you know, you know that you are from, uh, especially if you are from sub-Saharan Africa, just getting tested will be the number one thing I'll be doing for, for my family, even if I've got, I, I know, I don't know whether we have it in our family or not. Just getting tested, the simple blood tests, uh, it's very easy. And in most parts of the world, especially developed countries, it's free to get tested. So obviously there are traditional treatments offered for sickle cell and there are newer treatments offered. Um, you mentioned earlier the hydroxyurea. Um, can you explain a yes. little bit more about what that is and then tell us a bit more about the traditional treatments and any new treatments that you're aware of? So hydroxyurea is a drug that helps uh, production of uh, the phytohemoglobin. So I did say in the body, there's um, the hemoglobin, which is AA, which is fine, no issues. And then we have the hemoglobin SS, which uh, has, you know, gives sickle cell disease and all these complications. But also when a child is born, they are born with uh, phytohemoglobin. I spoke about this. Phytohemoglobin, for whatever reasons, for whatever science, it's not affected by sickle cell disease. So what hydroxyurea does, it um, starts the reproduction of that phytohemoglobin or baby hemoglobin. So when they give you hydroxyurea, it slowly starts producing. Even if you have just about 20 or 30% of that, the symptoms of um, you having the symptoms of sickle cell disease are very, very, very reduced. Our daughter went up to about 27%, and at some point she was okay, and then obviously it started, stopped working. But the more you have that phytohemoglobin, which is uh, what the hydroxyurea does, you know, the less likely you are going to be affected by sickle cell disease. So that's the number one number one treatment. But on top of that, if you are from, um, uh, or, um, the investor one also is having the the prophylactic antibiotics to avoid infections because we don't want to, to risk having infections. So we take, for example, my daughter takes 250 milligrams of uh, amoxicillin. The most common one is penicillin, but depends on whether you've got, uh, you know, whatever you decide with your doctors, you are on prophylactic antibiotics. But places where there's malaria, also they put them on anti-malaria drug as well, just to avoid having those uh, complications. So, and then also uh, uh, some doctors will prescribe iron tablets because of uh, being anemic, and they're going to prescribe some iron tablets as well. So that's the tradition, really. And I would say 99% of uh, the places around the world right now, they all rely on hydroxyurea because... Unfortunately, all the medications that have come up um, to be used as, you know, other treatment options are all coming from the United States. And I'm not sure when places like Africa will go ever 
receive those medications. They are trying some medications, like I know in diary, which is a glutamine. Um, they've, they've got one or two countries in Africa that are trying that. But, you know, looking at the, the, the prevalence of sickle cell disease, that's like nothing compared to how many people are affected. But most people are, are on hydroxyurea, which unfortunately as well is not as... You know, it's not very common because it's not easily available in places like Africa. So is hydroxyurea, is that a, an expensive treatment? Is it quite cheap to produce? Uh, it's, it's a very cheap drug at the moment. And I have had this discussion with uh, the parent company who, who, who firstly produced hydroxyurea. So hydroxyurea was not made for, you know, the doctors went into the lab and decided to, to investigate on sickle cell disease and then they came up with hydroxyurea. No, it wasn't like that. So hydroxyurea was created or um, done for people with different cancers. And so for doctors or scientists out there, when the people have had different cancers, which hydroxyurea was made for, they decided they, they started seeing that once they take that, it was increasing the fetal hemoglobin. And the scientists in the science world, they know that fetal hemoglobin is not used for, is, is not affected by sickle cell disease. And so in the, eight, in the 90s, I think 95, they decided to do clinical trials on sickle cell patients. They didn't even go into the, the third um, clinical trial, I think the third stage, whatever they call them. It was so successful that they, they immediately started using the hydroxyurea in the, I think, 95 or 98. I have to come back on that one. Um, yeah, so that's when they started using hydroxyurea. It's a repurposed drug. A repurposed drug is a drug that's used for another condition and it was not initially made for that condition. So that's what, what happened. But it's a very cheap, cheap drug. Uh, but in Africa, it's not as common. It's very difficult to get hold of it because obviously the cost and there's just poverty in the people. As I said, it's a sickle cell disease affects a lot of people. The most common genetic disorder in the world. It's been there in Africa even before it was discovered in nineteen in the nineteen hundreds. There's different uh, terms they use in Africa because um, it's been there all along, and they use herbs, and some herbs obviously work, but there's also uh, other flip where they say people have this condition, a case and all, but the drug itself is very difficult to get hold of in Africa. But in, in places like Australia, it's, it's available. And for people like residents like ourselves, we get it at a very cheap uh, concession price. But um, it's very difficult to get hold of in places like even in America itself where they've got a very funny um, health system, depends on where you are. Um, yeah, but it's a very, very, very cheap drug. But it's got its own, you know, own issues that I've, I've dealt with um, companies that are producing this. Why they only, uh, for so for example, in Australia, you can only get the 500 milligrams on, on, on concession. The 200 and 400 milligrams have to be, um, they have to be imported and they cost at a different price because when they did the clinical trials for the hydroxyurea, they never did clinical trials on... Uh, on, on sickle cell, so they they didn't have the reason to create the 400 or 200 milligrams. Only later in life, that's when they started doing the 200 and 400 milligrams. But we have Cyclos, which is a scored tablet, but again, it's not very common in most of the countries. It's just in Europe and in America.
So you mentioned there um, different herbs that were used to um, as a treatment for sickle cell. Are you aware of any of those herbs? Um, I know once they're they're using different herbs that I've heard of, I've never used any, but it's just to help with iron production, really, or hemoglobin. I know a lot of people take things like beetroots. I know they do like guava. uh, Is it guava? Guava leaves. The, 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 what is it again? Oh, there's this fruit. I've forgotten the fruit. Uh, uh, it will come to me. But they use the seed to just boil and take the water. It. This is something that we've grown up even when we were growing up, but I didn't know that it could be used for anemia, just production of anemia. Um, that's that's what they use. A lot of vegetables, and there is a lot of literature in terms of nutrition. A lot of greens help in, uh, you know, producing um good uh, iron for for i mean um blood for people who are having any other conditions not just about sickle cell disease so this is what i've seen but i'd never used it myself but it 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 does work for others and i have people who have sworn by just using herbs they've written books about it i've interviewed two people who just use herbs and for years and years they've never had a sickle cell uh, crisis because they believe that um, what we eat or what they eat actually works for them and it has worked for them to prove that before they started taking all these religiously um, plants or um, vegetables and fruits they, they used to have um, sickle cell crisis but now they don't and um, it works for them and this is something that I've said you know maybe once some some in future, we can we can see in our group and sponsor a few people to see whether it works for them. So yeah, it, I've seen a few people talking about this, but I I never use them myself. We never use any for our daughter because, as I've said, our daughter's condition was very complicated, and I just couldn't wait for 24 hours to wait because these things take time to start working. We had no time to wait to wait. We needed something quick to manage our condition. So, you know, if, if any of our listeners wanted to find out more about um, those brothers or sisters that you said have written books regarding using foods and herbs, where who would they look for um, to find out more? Well, they can contact me. One of the ladies is actually there in the US, in the in the UK. But you know, I I don't like put, putting people's information out there until I get um, you know consent from them. But they can contact me. Um, so you can just look me up. My website is my full name, agnesinsofa.com.au. If you send me an email or text message or find me on social media, get in touch with me. I can connect you with uh, uh, people that I know. They swear by what they eat. Uh, that has helped them in terms of uh, managing their sickle cell disease. So let them look me up. Agnes Insofa is my name and my website is my name, agnesinsofa.com.au. Now, in terms of policy changes, what would you like to see when it comes to sickle cell and where in the world would you like to see them the most? Um, In terms of policy changes, for me, we start with the top, top highest organisations who make policies for the world. I wouldn't single it out in terms of different countries just because I know sickle cell disease 
predominantly affects people that come from the sub-Saharan Africa. And I'm sorry, but um, the policies and the politics in these countries, is, it's something that, you know, I don't favor myself. There's so much bureaucracy and so much red tape. But if we work together as a, a global world, as a community, and go to the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and put policies that can help the sickle cell patient, we are talking about sickle cell disease being um, the most common uh, 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 genetic condition in the world, then something can be done. The same way the world came together and we had funding from different organizations about COVID, we can change the world. It doesn't take that much to have free hydroxyurea in all the hospitals in the world to treat at least the least we can do as a world is have that um, drug available for patients. But most of the African countries, you know, some of the people that find me online, especially when I post, because every year I talk about, I write at least an article about my daughter's cure, and then they'll be, oh my God, how did she get cured? And then I tell them that, look, uh, I'm going to be honest for you, like seriously, a bone marrow transplant is not something that you can talk about. Let's start with hydroxyurea first. Then they'll be like, what's that? They don't even know what it is. We had to, so many times we have to find doctors in different countries and help people being prescribed hydroxyurea because patients don't even know that there is this drug. So the least we can do is change policies from the top, top organizations like the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and all these people that have money and come together and, you know, have these people at least the least we can do is have them give them hydroxyurea and antibiotics and then we can start talking about the cure but for now let's tackle simple things like managing before we even talk about curing because curative options won't come now not even in 100 years in in, in the african patient we need to talk about how do we manage these patients i'm not going to single out a country in africa because their policies are different their priorities are different but we need to prioritize this, uh, prioritize sickle cell disease as a global world together from the top most organizations. You know, when they go to these um, World Health Organizations meetings, they should put it on the table. They've been there, they've been like um, in the 19, 1998, where they had, I think, so I need to go back again to my records, where they, they, they've done a strategic plan by now. The, the policies that were, you know, introducing that, that strategic plan should be doing all this but you know we're still looking at you know we don't have comprehensive sickle cell treatment centers in most countries we don't have newborn screening in most countries and even if we do like i know we have it in zambia it's only we have 10 provinces in zambia we only have newborn screening in in uh, two provinces what happens to the rest the majority of people that are you know affected by sickle cell disease you know, training of just awareness. Every day you have people asking you simple things like what is sickle cell disease. We need awareness program. We need testing. The same way we did, especially with, um, let me not even talk about COVID. Let's talk about HIV. You know, where those days it was taboo, but now look at how HIV is known. And why? Because there was funding which was put into HIV AIDS because it affected not only the African patient, but it affected everyone around the world. And that's why people got interested and funded uh, uh, HIV AIDS. But because sickle cell disease only affects certain people, there hasn't been so much interest. Things are changing slowly, let me confess, but it's not as the pace 
at uh, the rate where I would want it to be to see that the person in the village in uh, suffering from what they think is um, a case on their child, they don't know that that's a genetic condition. We need healthcare workers, healthcare workers in communities. We need leaders to change mindset of thing, people like the, the kings and queens and chiefs in this in small townships to understand that sickle cell disease is a genetic condition, it's not a case, and that there's a treatment option because it is killing as we speak. Millions and millions of children below the age of five are dying in Africa because the, the treatment is not as good as compared to developed countries, unfortunately. So let me end there. <laughs> so you mentioned there um, the thought process or the belief of it being a curse. Can you explain that a little bit more for us? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have heard a lot, a lot of times where... Um, most countries, especially Western countries, uh, West African countries, for example, I'll give you an example in Nigeria. Like Nigeria, they call it the capital city of sickle cell. They, they are like almost every other person has a sickle cell gene and they have to get tested before they get married. They also have a name. They think it's a curse. They've got a name that they call them. I think it's called Abiku or something. People who are, if somebody from Nigeria will be listening to this, they've got a term that they call these people. It means somebody who's cursed. And then in places like Gambia, for example, they've got an area like a suburb where they keep all these people who live with sickle cell disease because they think it's a case when you have it. So there is talk, especially in um, African countries, some African countries, not so much in my home country, Zambia, but they just stigma, a lot of stigma in Zambia even. Um, people don't want to talk about it. Obviously, as I said, some of the symptoms, the top most symptoms, obviously, is being anemic. And anemia comes with a fatigue. So if you are fatigued all the time, no one wants to employ you. No one wants to hang around with you because you're always tired. And people tend not to talk about it. They keep quiet because if you speak, then, you know, you are digging a hole for yourself. You may find, and some companies actually, which is discrimination, but they do say they can't employ somebody with sickle cell disease, but it happens. It happens a lot, especially where we don't have policies uh, to to back patients in some countries. So, um, yeah, there is a lot of stigma and uh, a lot of name calling in some parts of the world for people who have this condition, unfortunately. So you shared a lot of information uh, with us regarding sickle cell. Can you tell us more about your organization, which you are the founder and CEO of Australian Sickle Cell Advocacy? Yes, yes, please. So when my daughter was born, um, one of the things I, I wanted was Oh, information. I just wanted information. I, I was done with reading. I needed to speak to somebody. And then I found out that there was no organization that would help me. Uh, I was in Western Australia at the time. So we moved to Sydney again. I had a few, one or two families, but it wasn't enough. I wanted us to meet somewhere and talk. So when I was in Sydney, um, I spoke to one of the doctors to see if there's any organization that can help us. And then he said, you know, I don't know of any organization, but why can't you start one? It's like, okay. And it stuck with me for a few months. It was just in my head, uh, but I didn't act upon it until I moved to Melbourne when we started you know, searching for this cure for our daughter. I started a support group online on the Facebook group. 
which uh, we got a lot of, uh, uh, you know, inquiries from people, not just in Australia, other parts of the world as well. But with our Australian patient, we decided to start having informal meetups. And then we realized that some of the questions that we had, we couldn't do them as a not-for-profit organization. Um, but before that, I... When I went to the, one of the hospitals in here in Melbourne, the doctor said, look, there's an organization that helps patients with thalassemia, which is very similar to sickle cell. So you find out if they can connect you, if they've heard of any sickle cell patients. So I, I, I Googled this um, organization. I went and saw them. And then they said, you know what? We do have one or two patients who have uh, parents who have children who have uh, sickle cell and better because there's different types of sickle cell. So there's one SS, but there's also sickle cell, which is a combination of thalassemia gene and the sickle cell gene. Then they said, we have patients, uh, families, uh, two families, so you can join our group. And then let's see how we can increase sickle cell awareness. So I joined the group in, in 2014, but I gave them um, a condition that, look, it was very difficult for me to find you. If you want me to join an organization, I suggest that we change the name because they were Thalassemia Victoria, which is just based in Victoria and um, Melbourne, I would say. So we changed the name from Thalassemia Victoria to Thalassemia and Sickle Cell. I stayed with that organization, tried to implement policy change for, for four years. But it was very difficult. You know, this organization has been around for over 46 years. All they've known their life and some of the patients and patient um, representatives are, have been there from the beginning. Mindset change is very difficult if you don't act upon it. And so it was very difficult for some of these patients to change their mindset to start also looking at sickle cell. And, and then four years later, as sickle cell patients, we thought we needed more. More, more support from the government in terms of things like uh, testing and all that. The other things that I can't go into detail in terms of concession, pricing of medication and all. So we decided to form a separate organization altogether, just supporting sickle cell patients. And that was in 2018. So we started off in Melbourne. And now our organization is countrywide. We have patients all over Australia where we support, uh, we provide information, we connect families, we lobby policy change, and um, we've been doing that for the past four years. And I might say, I must say, we are happy with what we've achieved for the past almost five years now. For the first time ever in history in this country, we have uh, ministers, standing up health ministers on sickle cell, in sickle cell awareness month in September, on World Sickle Cell Day on June 19th, standing up and supporting the sickle cell patients. And we have patients who are born in this country over 70 years. They've never heard of a minister standing up and speaking and acknowledging them and that's had, has started happening now and we are now implementing things like newborn screening which is in the process we applied for that uh two years ago it's a process but we are getting there hopefully get it next year but it's something that i'll be very proud of if it's done because things like what happened to my daughter will be eliminated for a lot of children if that's implemented so that's where we are. We are very active on social media. We've got a website, which is allsicklecell.org, uh, allsicklecelladvocacy.org. You can find us on social media, all different social media platforms. And we encourage anyone who has sickle cell disease or they want information if they come to Australia to connect with us. Give us an insight into 
the brothers and sisters that do come to your organization then uh where if they if they're coming from different countries where where are these countries that they're coming from in terms of then coming to australia and coming to your organization well we've got a variety of patients and that's why if you go to our website which is osikoseoadvocacy.org we have translated our our brochures because our patient group or a patient demographic in this uh, country uh, working with the doctors is very, very vast. So we have uh, African countries. Obviously, we have people that speak maybe Arabic, people that speak Swahili, and uh, a lot of African Africans that come from English-speaking countries. But we also have uh, the Greeks, the Italians, the Indians. And so what we did for us as an organization, we went and uh, we've done about seven brochures just simple things like explaining what sickle cell disease is. Um, we talk about transfusions. We talk about mental health. We talk about sickle cell disease in schools. We have translated this information in uh, seven languages because our patient groups are very, very, um, very vast, as I've said. And we did this with a consultation of uh, with, uh, the doctors. So we have... Uh, if you go on our website, we have brochures in uh, English, obviously, Italian. Kirundi, we've also got a lot of uh, patients, uh, Kirundi-speaking countries, uh, speaking people, because when there's wars in Africa, Australia is one of the options that they take refugees from. And people from Kirundi-speaking countries came to Australia, and they have a few. And then we have Swahili, we have Greek, Arabic, and, and, and Hindi. So these um, speaking people, these languages, they are able to connect with us. And we have these patients because the doctors told us, no, can we have brochures in this, these languages? And um, yes, so we work with the hospitals because of uh, patient confidentiality. It's very difficult. We are on social media. We put our contact details there and patients find us that way. But we also have brochures in the hospitals where we can give the patients the brochures, but if they want to connect with us, they can. It's their choice. So the doctors and the nurses uh, in between us and the patients, and yeah, the vast of the 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 patients are these uh, you know languages that I've told you about. But all those information can be found on our website. We have um, about eight, seven brochures, all translated in these languages. And for any of our brothers and sisters, any any listeners that might be financially affluent that would like to help you in the works that you do, um, how which is the best way for them to get in contact with you? And ideally, where would those finances be going to? What what would you first implement those finances for within your organisation? Yes, so we are a registered charity in Australia. When you donate to us, you get your money back 100% at tax time. And once you donate to us, we have a different we have different projects that we are we are working on. Um the one of the things that I can uh, maybe point out right now, we are trying again with the the, the hospital system trying to make alert cards. This is where, you know, when you go in the hospitals, the doctors don't have to take long. You don't have to take long in the ED because you have all this information that alerts the, the doctors and the nurses how you're supposed to be treated, even if your hematologist is uh, not available. A lot of resources, especially mental health in terms of uh, helping our patients, but also just support. 
during the pandemic, we sent through like emergency bags where we just just sent um, thermometers, hand sanitizers information because our organization um you know people that come to this country most of them are affected by sickle cell disease uh are migrants or some of them don't even have um, a residence yet and it's very costly if i had the money we get so many inquiries just even like sending food for these people we can but because we are a private charity we rarely get funding only if we apply for grants it's been very difficult for us there's so many things that I would want us to work on, but because we are limited for funding, that's why most of the time our work revolves around information sharing, um, also uh, policy lobbying, but also connecting patients in different uh, towns. And also we meet up, like even the, the, at the end of the year, we'll be meeting as groups just to catch up as families and just to you know talk what's what's working for you, what's not working for you. But also representatives, if the patients want us to represent them, we've done a lot of letters in terms of immigration purposes. We can write letters to immigration purposes to schools, universities, colleges, informing all these places how sickle cell works with the patient or somebody living with sickle cell disease. That's something that we do behind closed doors to help patients that connect with us. So again, the information they can uh, get in touch with us. If they're in Australia, they've, they've got a, a toll-free number, which is a 1300 number, 1300-148-826. But uh, even my number is, is everywhere on social media. They can send a WhatsApp message to me or email me or send us a message on um, social media and we can get in touch with them. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much information and your works. Um, your next selection is Caribbean Plans. Can you tell us why you chose this selection, please? <laughs> so my, my answer will be the same again. Um, and I've been listening. This will be like last week. It was just like my kids be like, again, we, we see that you found another song. I love the song. It's a danceable tune. And it's just something that I'll be, especially in the in the summer. We are going into summer next month. I see myself, you know, with my girlfriends and just having drinks and dancing. That's the kind of song that I would go to. It's not so much like traditional reggae, but it's, had, it's got that beat where I'll be just relaxing and having fun. I love dancing, as I told you. So I can dance to this song and uh, just, uh, uh, I like the, the, the tune. I hope you enjoyed part two of this three-part feature with Agnes Sofwa. If you would like to connect with her, all of the links are in the description. If you haven't already subscribed to Reggae Uprising podcast, please do so right now. <laughs> Alternatively, you can connect via daniel.co.uk. So that's D-A-N-I-E-A-L.co.uk. If you would like to get in touch, get connect there through the contact page or social media. Um, but you can also subscribe there as well. So you can subscribe to Reggae Uprising podcast and you get all of the extras if you subscribe via daniel.co.uk. But that link is also in the description. Make sure you're back here next week for the final part. So part three of this feature. Yeah, I'm going to leave you. I know you haven't had the reggae music like you used to. You used to like the seven reggae selections all in the one episode. I'm sorry, they're all spread out. But um, we're going to finish off this episode with another one of her selections. Caribbean Plans by Shaggy and Poofy. I hope you have a wonderful week. 
And as always, blessed love. Baby girl, you should know that you're my starlet. I hope you know that you're the best thing on the market. Come out, you cried, you're got better than a carpet. You may target, just don't me not afraid to target. You know I'd rather have you real close to